morning, everybody. Welcome to the bookcase. I'm Dan. And I'm Scott. And today we have two more books to review. First one is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett, a uh, psychology professor at Northeastern University in Boston. And the second book is Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, who is a cognitive scientist, but is better known as an award-winning poker player. And Dan, why these two books? They have common themes, and I, I personally think they, they relate to, to mental health and behavioral therapy in a lot of ways. And, and the, the overlap is, is really fertile ground for you know, not only interesting discussion, but uh, interesting ideas for, for, for therapists, really. Yeah, truly. And of course, all of us have a brain. So we have a stake in this discussion because Feldman Barrett's book is, is about recent findings in neuroscience. And the other piece for me is that you cannot go to a workshop about psychotherapy without somebody mentioning the brain. It's as though we've just discovered that it's there. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it's very interesting. A, a lot of the, the common lore about the brain and its function, you know, are, are sort of myths that Lisa Feldman Barrett debunks, not the least of which is this idea of the triune brain. This idea that the different levels of the brain developed over time, and I, I can remember this was, this was the subject of one of my all-time favorite books that I read as an undergraduate student by Carl Sagan, Mr. Science himself, in the volume called Dragons of Eden. And she actually mentions in the book that, that specifically by name, and the, the idea that scientists, progressive neuroscientists at the time, actually knew that the, the concept of the triune brain was wrong. And uh, Carl Sagan still wrote about it in, in, in his book. So he, it, it, he had billions and billions of ideas, some of which were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's kind of what our brain does. But I mean, I guess to, to get specific about it is that the brain, the, the human brain, the brains of, of, of living creatures that have brains did, did not develop in layers with, with levels of complexity that got higher. The, as, as brains became larger, as brains had to manage more complex body processes, they reorganized. And so, so brains that, that may look from the surface to be very different actually have a similar organization. And purpose, it sounds like, from what she writes, that the idea was body budgeting to essentially run your body and all of its many functions efficiently. And in order to do that, it had to be able to predict more effectively. Absolutely. It's, it's a, it's a, I don't know if you want to call it a paradoxical concept, but, but that our, our brain is preparing us to act before we have time to think about all the sensory data that's coming in. So it's preparing us to act 
and then we, in essence, go back to the sensory data to confirm, but by that time we've already acted. Which to me was one of the most compelling and interesting parts of this book, that we've already made a decision. We've, the brain has already made a prediction and then the sensory data confirms that as opposed to the sensory data starting the process of us making a prediction about what to do next. We, we believe that we, we take in sensory data from the movie camera that's our eyes and our ears and, and the rest of our sense organs. And, and then we act on that data to make a decision, whereas it's, it's almost the reverse. Yeah, and um, to me, this has some strong, very strong implications. I'll say that what I think is the strength of uh, Lisa Barrett's book is in these social media saturated times, I know this is awful to say, but the chapters are short and well-written. They're pithy. They're full of wonderful nuggets about research and twists on what we often believe and how that's at at odds with the actual facts. It's, it's a read that you could do in 90 minutes e easily, and it's not going to strain your brain. And, and I do, would just say this at the same time, now having read this, I think two, you know, and even some chapters three times, it's the kind of book that you go back and you read it again and you think, how did I miss that the first time? Hmm. Um, and it, it's also the kind of book that, that maybe, maybe you read over a period of time or you read it now and then you read it again because, because you want to think about it as it applies to your own life and, hmm. and, and your own thoughts and your own behavior. And anyway, because I, I just, I happened to reread the chapter last night. There's a, a chapter on how we regulate each other's body budgets. Hmm how we, in essence, synchronize ourselves to other people. You know, they, she gives the example, you know, have you ever lost, you know, somebody and somebody died and you felt like you lost a part of yourself? Well, because you did, hmm. because you, some aspect of your body budget was, you know, that, that person was, was in essence responsible for it. And I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I don't want to jump ahead too far here, but that's tightly connected to a proposition that Annie Duke makes about good decision-making. And one thing that comes out of the pages, not from any single thing or single lesson that she offers about the brain, is how simplistic and off-course many of our current ideas are in the field of psychotherapy about how the brain interacts with what we do in therapy. It's sort of, I think she would say, neuro-reductionistic kind of thinking, which brings me to a paradox, by the way. Even though the brain doesn't function as we may think it does, and in fact, many of our interventions may not be sound in terms of, of the research, they still seem to work. I know lots of people who have been greatly helped by thinking of their brain as a triune brain and attributing, say, their temptation to drink 
or to engage in some other type of problematic behavior of them as their lizard brain speaking up and being able to externalize it and say, that's my lizard brain speaking has actually proven quite helpful to them. Right, it, it, it kind of reminds me of, well, it just, uh, it, we have this incredibly complex organ between our ears and we're learning more and more about its function but I, but I don't know that that necessarily changes our behavior or helps us know how to behave or, in essence, make better decisions. And so here's something that I think was a very interesting exercise that Annie Duke offered to prove that exact point, that our knowledge about the brain doesn't necessarily translate into better decisions or even more effective therapeutic actions. So she asks you to consider the following question. Think about over the last two years, the worst decision that you've made. And Annie Duke says that she's asked this in large audiences and with CEOs of big corporations. And in general, you, you, know what, you know what happens, Dan, when people are asked to talk about a decision that was bad, they typically refer to the outcome, not the decision itself. Because clearly, Annie Duke points out, which is an interesting distinction, you can make good decisions that have bad outcomes. She calls it resulting. It, it kind of works several different ways. You can make good decisions that have end up with bad outcomes and you can make bad decisions that end up with good outcomes and, and yeah and in fact that's why she says when you're thinking about life and for us when we're thinking about how we act as therapists it's probably a much more accurate analogy to refer to poker rather than chess Chess has a series of predetermined rules. You can always work backwards from the outcome of a chess game to the decision that was made and highlight the incorrect decision. Plus, everything is transparent. All the yeah. pieces are on the table. There's, there's no guessing. That's just not the way life is, Annie Duke would say. And reading her work, it's certainly not the way therapy seems to work. Most of the cards are not on the table and we're making decisions with a great deal of undefined variables and in an atmosphere of uncertainty. So the, the point is to think of life in more of a, I think they call it stochastic or, or probabilistic sense, where you do your best to, to estimate the probability of a certain outcome and and then you you can you have more information from which to make a decision. I was um, thinking about this both of these books in terms of feedback informed treatment because I think it's it, it's it's fairly fantastic for we, when when we have a good outcome in therapy, can we often attribute it to our brilliance? Um, <laughs> And, and maybe that's it. We don't even go any further. Mm. But it, with feedback-informed treatment, you at least have some data from which to, to, to kind of tease out what, what, what the reason was for, for the good outcome. And, and so you can, you can potentially look at, at, at those cases. So, and I would say the opposite is equally true. You can have an outcome 
that is bad or poor. And in our work, it's easy to attribute that to the client, yeah. which I guess in Annie Duke's sense would be bad luck. You had the bad luck of having this client walk through the door, which right. it's, I think it's interesting to point out Don Meichenbaum, the one of the originators of CBT, he, he sometimes jokes in workshops that if you want to have better outcomes, what you need to do is choose your clients more carefully because they really are a random element. And for me, at least, Annie Duke does what Lisa Feldman Barrett didn't do, which is talk about the practical implications, what you could actually do about this. And you were mentioning earlier that people's, we are regulated by other people and their brains. Uh, they, they help us. And curiously, after spending a lot of time in thinking for bets, talking about how our decision-making process can go awry, she says one of the keys actually is to be in a group of people that have a that are devoted to truth seeking and also diversity of opinion one of the things that's going to help you make bad decisions over and over again not necessarily related to outcomes but poor decisions is having people that agree with you yeah i do think that lisa does does get there a little bit she doesn't go so far as to say to develop your truth seeking group which is a a fascinating and a fantastic concept but she does advocate for for diversity of opinion for recognizing that our brain in essence she doesn't call it resulting but but that that we 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 work backwards from the outcome and our tendency is to hold on very tightly to our skill and our values and the reasons we got this particular result, even though they may have been related to, to a lot of luck and not necessarily a lot of skill. So I do think that she gets there. She just doesn't give the same practical advice. Yeah. Dan, I wanted to just return to one thought uh, that you mentioned, and that is, I think, one of Duke's practical applications about making good decisions. And the first one is you've got to separate outcomes from decision-making because otherwise reasoning backward can really lead you down a rabbit hole. Uh, uh, no one, she points out, would say that if you managed to drive home while intoxicated and didn't get in an accident, that you should reason backwards from that and say, well, obviously it's okay to drink and drive. That's, that's an that's a, a classic example of this. The second strategy she mentions, which you hinted at, was that we need to move beyond the binary of right and wrong when thinking about the decisions we make and instead think about them as probabilistic statements and assign to them a confidence level. So I believe X. I believe that challenging people's dysfunctional thoughts leads to better results. What she would say is that if you really wanted to engage in rethinking those, those thoughts and expand your point of view, you should assign a, a monetary value. How confident are you? How much money would you bet? Because if there's no skin in the game here, then you're very likely 
to be unchanged in your in your opinions and ideas well i um I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a conversation between Annie Duke and Lisa Feldman Barrett on that. And, and so I, I do think it's very easy for us to, to stay in our echo chambers because so there are the, the two most expensive things. So we talk about a body budget and the, the two most expensive things for our brains are number one, movement, and number two, learning, changing your mind, changing your brain, learning something new. And so the idea that we would look back at even like a positive result and say, well, how could that have gone wrong? Or what, what's, what, what might have been the downside of that decision? That's metabolically expensive for our, for our brain. And so it's, it's hard to do. In essence, you, you have to force yourself to do it. You have to force a withdrawal from your body budget for, for a down the line benefit. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And this of course dovetails for me really nicely with our current work on deliberate practice where we find that unless deliberate practice efforts are followed by what those doing these activities say is cognitive depletion, then very little learning takes place. To me, it also explains why most people don't do very much deliberate practice because it is body budget wise, mm -hmm. very costly. And for the most part, our theories and ideas, our beliefs and our decision-making work. In other words, there aren't catastrophic outcomes. But if you want to gradually improve your decision-making process to get better at it in life, and I think in particular in the therapy room, then this deliberate practice effort is a reliable pathway. And for me, at least, Annie Duke's book, much like Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, is exceptionally well-written and gives lots of practical tips. Agreed. Hey, hey. Dan, as, as a way of sort of wrapping things up here, I'm wondering, thinking and trying to apply some of what Annie Duke might say would be a good activity. What would, if you were able to speak to Lisa Feldman Barrett and ask her, what's a really solid reason not to read this book? What, what might she say? I think she'd say if, if you're comfortable in your own echo chamber, if if you wanna if you wanna keep your body budget just in balance, maybe just chugging along, go ahead. You you don't need to read the book, but but if if you're interested in a little bit of swing in your body budget with the pretty good potential that you could get you could you could get way over budget, you might want to read the book because it, it will, it will affect, it'll affect your brain in a positive way. So say you, you are deciding whether or not to read the book and the book's probably going to take you four or five hours to read. And what else could you be doing in that four or five hours? You could watch a few Ted Lasso's on Netflix or maybe you could surf the net for a while and have sex with your partner 
you could do you could have sex with your partner for four or five hours my from our last podcast you could smoke some pot you could you could find a way to use drugs yeah absolutely so there's uh, there's a lot of good reasons and alternative things that annie duke would say that you could do instead of reading her book and I think Barrett would say it's important to consider those things before you just decide to go out and get them and, and read them thinking it's going to make your life somehow different or improved or even enjoyable. Mm -hmm. There's opportunity costs. I'm, I'm having a little thought here too. I mean, this book is, is profound for me. Has it altered my body budget in a way that, that it, 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 it'll keep on giving to me. And I, and I suspect it has. And I think Annie Duke would say, how much are you willing to bet on that? Right, I, for sure. We'll be back in a short while with episode three. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Scott.